Hi everyone and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. I am Kevin Vulcan. I'm professor of psychology at California State University, Channel Island. And I teach and study about atypical psychopathologies and culture-bound syndromes. And, and you're um, a musician too. Tell us about I'm that. a musician. I have, uh, that's my uh, third job. <laughs> Uh, is being a musician, which has now been put on hold because of the pandemic. But I play in a band called Sister Ook. I've been a musician since I was a kid, so I've been doing this for a long time. Nice. I'm a rock musician. I don't do anything, nothing high and mighty. You know, I'm, I'm a, I stri- say strictly in the folk tradition of uh, rock music. But I'm, I'm a guitar player and um, sometimes composer and, you know, those kind of things. I love doing it. And, you know. Would you like to grow older? You're like, uh, yeah, I think the alternative is not so good. So, yes, I would like to grow older. So, what's the alternative yeah. to getting old? Dying. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, is that the alternative? Okay, Interesting. Yeah. I would never see that as the alternative. I guess, yeah. If you're not living, that's you're dying. That's the alternative. Yeah, we're like sharks. You know, we got to keep moving, and uh, that's through space and time, unfortunately. So, why sharks? Because all animals sharks move. have to. Most sharks have to move in order to breathe properly for their gills to work properly. There's some that can. I think they can stay still. I know there's some that sit at the bottom of the ocean in places where the current goes past, and they can just sit there and let the current go over their gills. Really? But most sharks have to perpetually move their whole lives. Yeah. Wow. So they have to keep moving, yeah, in order to... I order did not to, know that. And, now, and, hey, I, and when they're feeding... I'm only an amateur fish biologist, so don't take my word for anything. <laughs> well, it's too late. This is going to be the title of a show. <laughs> Kevin Vulcan says. Yeah, sharks are very interesting. I know, I know I have an amateur's knowledge of shark. You know, Australia's got a lot, and I don't know about New Zealand. I know Australia has quite a few. So That's a, something we share with Aussies, right? We, we live in white shark land. So, actually, <laughs> another question. Is this a myth that sharks attack human beings as prey or is it just to defend themselves so what i've heard is that most shark attacks on humans are uh, a matter of curiosity Mm. they don't know what you are and so they come up and they and they don't have hands to tactily feel things they have mouths they're very or you would say in psychoanalysis they're very orally oriented so they come and they they take an exploratory bite and usually they don't like what they taste you know the neoprene wetsuit or whatever and so they take off but that exploratory bite can be quite uh, damaging to our frail human bodies that's usually what happens i mean that's not always the case but usually that's that's what they say and then there's something about you know how when humans are paddling around in the surfboard from underneath they look like eels or uh, you know sea lions or something i've also heard people debunking that so i know that's a common thing people around here believe so another thing about zoom is that i sent you a text message that i was supposed to send to huda which yeah, was a good start. I'm going to shut up. So, Huda, <laughs> message loud and clear. Wait a minute, what? I sent it to him first by Did accident. You? Yeah. Imagine if I said something shit about him. <laughs> That'd be terrible. I don't care. This podcast Are would you, be over. You would not be the first person today to say crap about me. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, no. Hey, what happened? Oh, I got, uh, I got a letter from somebody who... Uh, had a research call. He was from Northern California. He had a research colleague in Europe who had emailed him and said that I had this lecture that's available, you know, to everybody, which I'm on YouTube. You have a couple of lectures on YouTube on, you know, it's for my class, but it was on YouTube. It's on body modification. And that lecture was on castration informant. He called them took great offense at some of the things I said in the thing. And the guy sent me a whole letter telling me about castration. And there's all these people who voluntarily castrate themselves. And Those were one of the first lectures that came up. And I honestly, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you, Kevin, is you share my sense of humor because 
for a lecture like that, which is pretty heavy. Man, I got I to take that off. I'm getting in trouble. The problem is, is that this guy made the leap in his mind from people who castrate themselves. And I'm a psychologist, so I talk about psychopathology. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that everybody who castrates themselves has a psychopathology, or as I would say, it's not to say that everybody who castrates themselves is any more crazy than anybody else. That's just their form of expression of whatever their psychological stuff is going on. But the problem is the guy equated people who castrate themselves with transgender people. Oh. I, even though I talk about transgender people in the lecture, I do not make that association. They're not the same people. I do not make that association. They're di- it's different. And I have a whole nother lecture on body dysmorphic disorder, which actually comes earlier. And that's part of the problem. I think he listening to just that lecture, you may hear things out of context, but I do not equate those two things. And of course, transgender people can be transgender for a whole variety mm-hmm. of reasons, you know, which don't have anything to do with wanting to mutilate your genitalia because well, it's not the same. Then you shouldn't take it down. Yeah. Because it, there's enough of cancel culture going on in entertainment. It doesn't need to go to academia as well. Well, so here's my worry about that. And I'll just share it with you guys is that transgender people get a lot of crap from everybody mm-hmm. and they are, you know, they have higher rates of suicide. They have, there's lots of discrimination against them. You know, they have a rough time in life and I do not want in any way, shape or form to be thought to be contributing to that. Yeah. Just the opposite. I mean, actually, I think I say that in my lecture. I, have to re- I haven't listened to it in a long time or watched it. I think in the end, I talk about transgender people and what a hard time they're having mm-hmm. and how we need to treat transgender people better. I, I hope that's in the lecture. I know I- I've said that in my classes before, but, you know, I, I worry that people will you know, do the same thing this guy did and equate this with something that may be related in some people and other people may not be related. And so I I worry about that, especially they're not getting the context of the rest of my class. Um, And that's the danger of putting these lectures up on YouTube. We were talking about this and I will welcome any of our listeners after they hear this podcast to tell us about cancel culture in academia, especially. I'd be very keen to know what listeners think about it. I can't believe that it belongs there. A lot of it comes from... A really good place. You know, people are who have been oppressed. They've put up with a lot of crap, especially in academia. I just, you know, had a meeting with my colleagues today, and my colleagues were telling me how, you know, for instance, women of color, when they come into an academic job that requires them to negotiate, Mm -hmm. you know, something salary, you know, lab, you know, space, whatever it might be, that they're very often treated differently than a white male coming in, you know, and that's a real, I I really believe them. I, Mm -hmm. I think when they tell me that, I take that as a real thing, you know, so when they say they don't want to have, you know, some sort of policy that requires people to negotiate because that's going to disadvantage a certain group of people, you know, I don't see that as cancel culture. I take that as a serious thing. That's something in academia we need to do better at. Hmm. And, you know, so there's a fine line, you know, and then there's stuff that I, I find, which I won't give examples of because I don't want to get in trouble where you just shake your head and you just go, this is just beyond common sense. You know, this is just not, doesn't make any sense. You know, this is just people being perhaps overly sensitive. But then again, I'm a white male. So, yeah, that's- you know, what I find that you know, maybe is oversensitive, somebody, person of color may not have that experience. And so I tend to believe what my colleagues tell me, you know, I, I and I don't, I don't take offense at, you know, cancel culture I, I just try to roll the punches with it but you do have to look behind it and you got to see what people's intentions are and the intentions i ge- think are generally pretty good well Huda, mm. i think Huda, being the woman between two men <laughs> i'd want to ask her 
I understand your point, Kevin. Is it? And this is just a question. I'm not sure about the answer, but I want to know your thoughts.、Mm-hmm. Is it okay to be offended on someone else's behalf, or how far is it justified? I feel like anyone can always just get offended,、mm-hmm. and I think that sometimes you need to draw a line. And the problem, I guess, ultimately, is that how much can you possibly accommodate for everybody before it gets to a point where it's too difficult to do so? But that's just my opinion. Coming from me, I think where I work, I'm surrounded by men.、Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty much white men. Yeah, predominantly. Predominantly, and so because of that, I've actually I hear all sorts of stuff. So I don't really get offended,、mm. especially easily. So I feel like maybe coming from me, it's not as impactful. But we can say that about anyone, right? If we we can justify it like that for anyone. Well, yeah. But the fact is that you've had to have a thick skin. Yes. To continue working. I could in that see.、Area. Yes, I could see on multiple occasions. Oh, I know. <laughs> why somebody could get、mm. offended if it, you know if it wasn't for that? I take everything as a pinch of salt. I don't look into it and. We were actually discussing this, Kevin. So we were saying with political correctness. Correctness. Isn't it correctness? No, just correctness. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, that's that's what we know what you're we know what you're talking. That's、about. what what broke Kevin. I actually like correctness. That I, I actually kind of like that. That's got a little bit of a subtle change of the meaning. Like, well, it's correct. Yeah. Like you、know. stand corrected. <laughs> correctedness. Yeah, it's a little、I、bit、see. like you stand corrected. Yeah, yeah I like that. <laughs> All right, new、um, term. <laughs> we're going to coin it. Yeah.、Um, yeah, trademark that. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, I wonder how much we can then push for authenticity yeah. because. Yeah. Everyone says, "Oh, be authentic, be yourself." But then we also say, "Oh, just be careful with what you say," or you know,、yeah. don't use this term or don't use that term because it'll offend somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And I just find it really difficult. We you know where do we draw the line and where do we sit then? I completely agree with you. I mean, you know, and there's so much subtlety to it, and it's like an onion that you peel back and、mm-hmm. you keep peeling back, and then you don't find any. I mean, I have a lecture. Actually, I just gave this publicly the other day on racial categories. It's from my lecture on Nazi Germany. I mean, can I just、thing. be honest, Kevin? The stuff you're talking about, there's no way that you're not going to be in trouble. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, the thing is, this is why you got to talk about Nazis because once you talk about Nazis doing stuff, you get a pass, and so people go, "Well, you know, it's the Nazis. The Nazis did that, so okay, you know." And You know, but I, I, I in the lecture, I talk a lecture about racism in America, and I talk how Americans view racial categories and how they've changed.、They're, they haven't been the same. I mean, some people, you know, for instance, African Americans, they've always been the you know, since this country has began, since America has began, have been subject to racism.、Mm-hmm. Other people have been subject to racism, and then that's kind of progressed, and they've become、uh, one of the categories is honorary whites. Honorary、right? whites. Honorary whites. There's a guy did research. He has three categories: whites, honorary whites, and I think it's something like collective blacks or something. And there are groups that can straddle categories. There are groups that have been in one category and have turned into another. You know, in this country, you know,、uh, a good example are Irish, right?、The、Irish when they came to America, there was a lot of racism against Irish people, a lot of stereotypes. They were seen like、uh, black people, how African Americans、mm. were seen. And then over the years, you know, they've 
ascended to you know white status mm. and um it's i think the same with her italians too especially italians coming from southern italy which is the same uh, in australia mm. like italians yeah. kind of had that initial phases of struggle when they moved here yeah mm. yeah and now yeah. they've kind of like reached that status where you know they they're caucasian as well yeah they're yeah. somewhat yeah. equal the the thing with with ireland is i didn't know about this so i was corrected so i did uh, edinburgh uh, french festival So I stayed in mm. Scotland for a month and a half. And while I was there, I met a, quite a few Irish people. And they told me about the Troubles, which I didn't even know was a thing yeah. because I was yeah. living on a fucking yeah. rock. And they have their internal problems. So talk about racism. Yeah. Like it yeah. is rife yeah. in Ireland right now as yeah. we speak. Well, is it racism or religious stuff? You know, I, I can never tell, you know, and, yeah. and, and it's also related to how much, you know, the, Irish were oppressed by the British, the Protestant mm -hmm. British, oppressing mm -hmm. the Irish. And then some Irishmen, you know, identifying, you know, they're Protestants. And yeah, the troubles are, you know, were exactly that. They were troubles. But th that conflict, like a lot of conflicts, came out of, you know, at least had some origin in earlier colonialism, you know, that I the Irish were colonized. And, you know, again, I don't know if I was talking to you guys about this or somebody else, but You know, anywhere in the world where from us. I, I talk to <laughs> people all the time. How dare you, know, you cheating on and I, I was talking about colonialism and saying, you know, anywhere in the world where you see where there's been colonialism, there's always problems later. You know, there always are problems later. I don't care where it is. Colonialism is, in my opinion, just a bad thing. And it creates ripples into the future of bad things. It does. And, and that's why a lot of people, when they question me about you know, why is India like this? Like ugh, so many people yeah. in India, so many problems. And I'm like, just, we're a pretty young nation. It's only been 70 years. So if you go back 70 yeah. years, yeah. we just got rid of the British after 200 years. It yeah. wasn't wow. five years. It wasn't 10 years. It was 200 years. That's like, a long time. You spend a year with a shitty person and you're like, fuck it, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Imagine doing yeah. it with 200 years. <laughs> so yeah. it was like generational trauma. Yeah. And and, inter and generational trauma gets passed on unconsciously. My dad's is the world's expert on this stuff. He's written a bunch of books on this. And, you know, this intergenerational trauma is, is a real thing, you know, and it, it gets passed unconsciously and it can be repressed for a long time and then resurface. And, you know, it, it gets passed it through, through the parents, the children or the grandparents, the children, in these very subtle, unconscious ways. And then when there's a like, you know, you can look at the former Soviet Union, you know, in the Balkans. They go away, then suddenly all these old conflicts pop back up again. People start fighting. You know, I mean, you see it in India now. I mean, India and Pakistan, you know, this, this that generational trauma from the partition before that passed on. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's terrible. And a lot of it has to do with colonization. You know, I mean, it, mm -hmm. you, you, when you colonize somebody, you traumatize them. You know, there's a, there's a trauma in colonization and, you know, all these, all, and, and, you know, again, a lot of racism, you know, exists or came into existence as a justification for, you know, going into somebody's place and taking them over and taking their resources, you know, from them without compensation, resources down to their bodies, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, without compensation. And so, you know, the, the trauma is tremendous. So, so racism and colonialization, you know, they, they're the evil twins. They go together, you know, yeah. and, and just, and you look around the world and you can see still, you know, the, even in places that haven't been colonized for, you know, 70 years oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that you see the after effects of it, you know, and it, it's sad. And, and I wish more people would teach about 
not only racism, but also about colonization. And so that, I mean, it's something I think really needs to not happen in the future. The question I keep asking and no one can really tell me about is if trauma is genetic or can get passed on. How it gets passed on is not genetically, it's the epigenetics. Epigenetics. So what, so the genetics is like the computer hardware, right? You've got a, you've got a Mac and it's got a certain kind of circuitry, you know, that gets passed on to the next Mac. So they all have this kind of circuitry that gets passed on. Epigenetics is like the software or the operating system that runs on the computer. Yeah. And so we might have the same computer, right? We both might have a Mac or a PC, uh, but, you know, you're running Zoom on yours and I'm running Skype on mine, right? And why do we run Zoom and Skype? Because I grew up in a family that only that loves Bill Gates and they love Microsoft. So we only use Bill Gates' Microsoft products. And you grew up in a family and your family loved uh, Steve Jobs. So you only use things that are Apple compatible. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really the difference between genetics and epigenetics. And so what had been found is that people can have you know, similar genetics, but different, different programs get run depending on the past experience, not only their past experience, but also the past experience of their parents. It's Mm -hmm. a little like, if you think about it in terms of evolution, it's a little like Lamarckian evolution. You guys know about the difference. So Darwin basically came up with the genetic, uh, you know, theory of evolution, which is not a theory. It's a real thing. It is natural selection, right? Things that increase fitness, increase, you know, reproduction, those traits get passed on and ones that don't, you know, they get sort of left behind. And, and you know, so that's the, typically how genetic things work. Epigenetics works like Lamarckian evolution, which is the idea of an inheriting acquired characteristics. So a giraffe would stretch its neck to get leaves higher up. And then when it gave birth to young baby giraffes, those giraffes would have longer necks, mm. right? right? They acquired that characteristic from their parents. That's disproven genetically. But epigenetics, on the other hand, does operate in a more Lamarckian way. Uh, and, and this is a new hot area in biology and in psychology, you know, is, is looking at epigenetic influences because this is something that, you know, I mean, psychologists, we deal with acquired characteristics, right? Usually we say, especially as more Freudian oriented psychologists say, you know, what happens to you in early development, what happens to you, especially early on in your early childhood, you acquire some sort of pattern that then when you're an adult is, is maladaptive. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what as a therapist, we try to go back and help you work through and undo that maladaptive pattern yeah. and acquire an adaptive pattern, right? And we do this by going back to this earlier time and we replay out through the relationship with the therapist, all these kind of things, and try to go back until you have an awareness of that, right? That is a version of acquired characteristics. If you take that back now to before you're born Mm -hmm. and it happens in, you know, with how, you know, what is expressed in the DNA is to be affected by stuff that happens before you're born. And it happens through a mechanism uh, for the most part where DNA, there's, there's methylation going on in the DNA and Mm -hmm. suppress or allow stuff to be expressed that can be affected by stuff that happens before, even before you're a little kid. Also can happen when you're a child, but also happens can happen in the previous generation. And so that's a very hot area of at least in psychology right now. And it's just now starting to be, you know, really examined and just mm. starting now to be some studies on this. And and you know, I think in my field, which is psychoanalytic sort of theory, you know, right now I think, you know, we're the big thing is neuropsychoanalysis, trying to equate, you know, neurology and brain structure with metapsychological concepts like the id and the ego and the superego and things like that. But I really think, you know, where the gold is, is looking at epigenetics and psychoanalysis and acquired characteristics 
acquired, you know, like how do you acquire your ego? What, what, what is your ego like? And how does it have to do with, you know, the expression of your genetic stuff, not just your genetic material, not the hardware, but how, you know, the programs, which programs are running. Yeah. Right. And that, that's a really, really interesting area. And I do not know a whole hell of a lot about it. I had to learn a little bit because I was, I was teaching a class in clinical psychology. And so it was in the textbook. So I had to learn a little bit about it, but it is fascinating. Really. It's going to revolutionize the field of psychology, you know, probably 20 years. It's going to be, uh, you know, a big part of the field of psychology. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because um, I do think about that a lot in terms of, you know, from generation to generation, we move on. We always tend to have some form of characteristics or way of thinking yeah, that's yeah. somehow connected to, you know, yeah. the ancestors and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And if you think about it psychologically, like my dad's stuff on intergenerational trauma, think about psychologically, you don't even need to really assert anything about genetics or epigenetics. I mean, you know, you come from, you know, I have a student who's Armenian and she did her doctoral dissertation on the Armenian genocide and transgenerational trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So she went out and interviewed people in the Armenian community who were like three generations from the Armenian genocide yeah. and still found, you know, unconscious stuff being passed on to wow. them, right? And this is a quantitative study. I mean, this wasn't a qualitative, you know, case history, typical kind of study you see in psychoanalysis. This yeah. is a quantitative study measuring traits and things you know so these kind of things get passed on and those you think about like genocide and these kind of things those are big you know big ripples you know yeah. sort of in the pond right but think about just like your family characteristics and how you grew up and your cultural variations these are much smaller ripples but they're still really important right that if you grew up in a certain culture you know that you have certain expectations about the world you know you were treated a certain way as a child especially as an infant I'm writing about this now, right? You know, that, 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 you know, in some cultures, you know, you may have, you know, multiple primary caregivers, right? Mm. The extended family you may have mm. grandmothers around, aunts and uncles, not just your mom and dad, yeah. you know, and so you, you may, you may need less when you go in through this sort of period of time, this transitional period, you may be less likely to need to have a transitional object, like a teddy bear or a blanket or something. Yeah. Because you've got all these primary caregivers taking care of you. That's so right? true. It's a if you're a white uh, waspy kid from, you know, from Boston and you grew up in that family, you know, and it was just a nuclear family, mom and dad and you and, you know, and everybody treated you a certain way. And mom was the only primary caregiver. You know, you may need to have a teddy bear and a blanket and something like that wow. to soothe you because mom can't be around all the time to satisfy your needs. That's subtle things like that. That right? is exactly. I think you like just decoded my upbringing. Yeah. Because yeah. I always found it interesting that like when I look back at my toys, so in Indian families, especially, they, they give the toys to other kids in the family. They kind of get passed over. Right. But I barely had any. And I was always, yeah. I always wondered why I never, like, I had no fascination with teddy bears ever. Mm, like, neither. Yeah. You, may not, you may not need them. You might have had a, um, uh, a really extended family, you know. I mean, so you don't have a need for that transitional object. So this is something I've been researching a little bit into. So people have written about this. And so these kind of subtle things make a difference. You know, your culture makes a difference in you know, in subtle ways and how you are, how your personality comes together in some ways, you know, really overshadows the genetics. Yeah. You know? uh, I mean, you know, really, you know, the genetics, we're all, you know, people of the same quote race are more genetically dissimilar than people of, you know, cross mm. race. Mm-hmm. Right. That's something people don't realize, you know, I have more genetic similarity with, you know, a person from Africa than I, you know, or a person from, you know, 
Iceland than I than I do with you know somebody who lives down the block who yeah. identifies as white or something. You know, the genetic stuff we are really, really, really similar genetic, but culturally we're different. Yeah. And especially you know, especially psychoanalysis, we like to look at these early childhood experiences because that's more theorizing the, the sort of meta structures of the mind. You know, these things we call ego and superego, these mm-hmm. kind of existence where these come into being. And this is where a lot of our pathology originates. They don't come into being, you know, they're not built properly. It's like building a Jenga tower, you know, mm. you know, I put the, too many blocks over here and now it's kind of leaning, it's going to fall over, you know, that's when it happens. The Jenga tower is being built, you know, in infancy. It doesn't suddenly start when you're 14, you know, when you're 14, the tower is already basically <laughs> built. Now, yeah. I was going to ask, how early are we talking we're talking, you know, zero to three, three years, you know, and then after that time, it becomes more like, you know, the, the old school Freudian stuff, you know, the Oedipal complex and things like that, which is important. But again, it's the Jenga tower, right? How you navigate the Oedipal complex. And again, you know, my view of Freudian stuff like the Oedipal complex is a little different than perhaps somebody like my dad. You know, I tend to view these things as I think Freud would do if he were alive, I view them sort of in terms of evolutionary psychology. For me, the Oedipal complex is really a time when you learn about dominance hierarchies. And this is something we see in primates, mm. that the parents are, you're the first dominance hierarchy you're in is one with your parents mm-hmm. and your sibling. Yeah. You learn how to navigate it in that small microcosm. And then when you're five or six years old, you go off to school mm-hmm. for the first time. And now you have to do with other people, yeah. right? And so if you do it well, if you learn it well within your own family, then you are well situated to go off into the society at large as a small child and function better in that. And when that when there's confusion in the dominance hierarchy at home, when you go off into the world at large, then you also have a lot of confusion that gets amplified. So I have a little bit different viewpoint of the Oedipal complex, though it's not it doesn't contradict the way that Freud thought about it. I mean, I think Freud had a lot of great insights about this. That not necessarily that you you want to like you know marry your mother and kill your father, you know mm. that kind of thing guy and vice versa if you're a girl but if you ever work with kids and if you have kids you will see this you go oh my god you know like i mean i can remember one time when my kid was three years old and i went over to kiss my wife and i hung her and my son ran right in the i mean you go oh my god and, you know and then Grandma, oh, i want to marry mommy. i don't want you marrying mommy i want to marry mommy Aww. you know he, he could trust that i wasn't going to kill him but if i had been a dad that had been more like you know you know he <laughs> yeah. and he had more anxiety around that right and of course of course, he had anxiety because we all have anxiety around that stuff. But that is also based on what happens earlier, especially in that earlier primary caregiver relationship. If that is solid, then there's a better solid platform for the Oedipal complex to exist in the dominance hierarchy to work out better and then, then to be sort of elaborated into society. Wow. And again, you can look at primates and you can see a similar pattern with primates. So this is something I'm going to write about. I'm going to call it dominance hierarchy confusion trademark because I don't want anybody ripping this idea off of me. I think it's a good idea. I'm going to write about it one of these days. The early stuff is really, really important. And the worse the pathology, the psychopathology, the earlier it happens, you know. So if you if you're making a Jenga tower, you guys know what Jenga is, yeah. right? That game blocks. You're making a Jenga tower, and you really screw up the base, the first two levels. They're really all screwy and wonky. That tower is not going to go very high before it collapses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if I get the base pretty good, and then I start wonking it up up here. The tower might collapse, but only the top part's going to collapse, and the rest of it will be okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's kind of like that's kind of like 
you know, development, right? Childhood development. You know, if the base stuff that happens very early on doesn't happen well, then you get the more severe pathology. Uh, so I didn't know this existed until I left India. There's a fascination with Western society and you know there's so much obsession with kids school and that yeah. everyone wants yeah. to be close to the school so so they can you know send their kids to a good school which is important like i understand that that school yeah. is important it's part of that foundation but you know from what i'm understanding about your research that 0 to 3 is really really crucial and in some ways yeah. it might be as important as the time after as or more important and unfortunately i want to say more but then you would have corrected me kevin so No, I you know no I I tend to think unfortunately in America unfortunately I don't know how it is in other places but in America when they go to cut programs the first ones they cut are the early childhood programs you know parenting programs oh. early childhood education support for you know single mothers at home taking care of kids the first thing that gets cut you know and it's it's I always go that is just the stupidest thing because that is really where the problems are going to come in. You could nip a lot of those problems in the bud by providing mm-hmm. support mm-hmm. for parents when they have very young children. That would really pay an incredible amount of dividends as far as mental health is concerned, you know, and productivity of society, all those kind of things that stem from people being, you know, more mentally you know, healthy, you know, more mentally capable. That's a here lot of pressure for parenting. Yeah. And I think that's why you know, we always it's really important to be ready to have a child because a lot of the time you have to be fully prepared to put everything into their development and growth. Yeah, having kids is a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you're single and poor or you know, all these kind of things. You know, again, other cultures, you know, there's more of a extended family, right? And so the the responsibility for the kids can get you know diffused among lots of people and that's really helpful but in you know in countries like America where you have at least you know the sort of standard you know nuclear mm-hmm. family in America which is not really true because people have extended families here depending on you know where their backgrounds but you know that that you don't have that if people are fairly isolated and that causes a lot of trouble now you get other problems with with extended families right yeah. right nothing is perfect you get different different issues with extended families but for early childhood education it may be that the extended families so the idea that it takes a whole neighborhood to raise a child yeah it's not yeah. it also it? Can, it also can take a neighborhood it takes to a abuse village. a child oh, it too. Takes that's a, what they right? call it so i mean you know you can it also can go the other way around too you know you can have you can take a whole neighborhood and abuse a kid you can scapegoat mm-hmm. it there's there's <laughs> negative there's <laughs> always be. the flip side of things right it's never perfect oh we should just have it shouldn't have families for everybody mm-hmm. you know and the world would be a better place you know maybe maybe not you know we don't really know there's there's always flip sides like i teach a lot of kids who come from asian countries neo confucian countries right you know you know east asian countries china you know japan korea you know places like this neo confucian neo confucian countries meaning that they have a lot of confucian ideals that they may not be completely conscious of but they the society's function according to that and one of the confucian ideals is that you are obedient to your parents you know that that you have a duty to them they have a duty to you you have a duty to them and out of these kids and they'll come to me and say oh you know i really want to like you know what i want to do is i want to be an artist i want to go paint but you know my dad is a a, a baker so i got to be a baker you know because that's what my family expects of me and you know they've grew you know they've brewed me for this and i've got to do it you know i have no choice and again you know they also this sense of extended family well you know my uncle is a baker and my dad's a baker and you know my mom's brothers are all bakers and my mom's sisters are all married to bakers so i've got to do that too they they feel more constrained about you know their life choices 
than perhaps you know a kid who grew up in the West. You know, like oh, you know, I'm 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 18 now. My parents, I screw my parents. I'm gonna go do what I want, right?、Mm. You know, because I I just had those two, and they're old now. I'm just gonna go off and do what I want. And, you know, there, there's so there's there's that difference, and you know, there's even in India, in South India, they're the、um, Seora people、mm-hmm. who typically are, I believe, you know, they would be considered a, a lower caste、mm-hmm. caste, and they tend to be farmers, subsistence farmers. Yeah. And the kids there、um, sometimes suffer from a form of psychosis that they, where they feel like that they are、um, possessed by a spirit. They're, they're supposed to marry these spirits,、mm. and if they don't, and sometimes they get possessed or they get harassed by these spirits. And、uh, one of the some of the research on the Seora people, the, the Seora psychosis, is that these kids are basically growing up and they're seeing their future, which is to basically be like their dad.、Mm-hmm. Mom and be dirt farmers, and、yeah. they don't want to do that.、They、want to go off the city and get an education and get a different kind of job, but they sort of like because of the tradition, they're sort of stuck there. Yeah, it, it's、so、considered it, a curse. They say that yeah, you, you basically yeah. can't break that curse. So what happens is they have a psychotic break,、mm-hmm. and then they freak out. The shaman comes in and says, "Oh, you know, you have a talent for this, seeing the other side, the spirit world. So now I'm going to take you as an apprentice, and you can become a shaman, which is a better job than a dirt farmer.、Mm-hmm. You know." And, and, and so you know,、oh, man, it's, it's, a big... it's a, like a pressure release valve for these kids who feel like they're stuck. Well, a culture education makes you appear more white to the you know the white majority. I don't know that, that that's very you know I'm sure I have colleagues who study you know race. You probably could speak more you know more uh, uh, directly to that. Go. Let's go back to castration. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, you know, my theory is this may be the thing that offended people. My is that a lot of castration came about because in human history, few fathers had many children with lots of different mothers,、oh. and so this is something that's actually been traced genetically. Wow, they can look back and see people's genetic. And what this meant was that some other primates, you had alpha males who.、Um, Had mated with the females, while other males who were, were not mating as much or at all, and so what you'd end up doing is having alpha males that guarded essentially harems of females、mm-hmm. and tried to prevent other males from mating with them. And you can see this in primate behavior. There's something called mate guarding that you see in primates. You also see it in humans,、uh, which is really quite interesting. And so the idea is that that behavior. There's some genetic evidence, and again, I won't say this is incontrovertible because I'm sure that people would disagree with this. But there's some evidence that, you know, that in the past, most babies were fathered by few fathers and many mothers,、mm-hmm. and so that gives indication we had this kind of thing. And the idea is that castration came about in early civilizations as a way to augment mate guarding.、Mm-hmm. That what you do is you take these males, you castrate them, especially castrate them as young children. They grew up this way. It's not depending on the castration, the level of castration.、Uh, they are not likely to impregnate the women, right?、Mm-hmm. So this is a way that these men could pass on their genes, have some more assurance that the children were their children, right? Female lineage societies are a little bit different. We can have a whole other talk about that. So the speculation is that systems of castration, again, and I make this clear: the systems of castration. Not people who voluntarily choose to cut off their genitals probably came out of primate behavior of mate guarding, quite augmented mate guarding. That's my speculative theory. So、oh, mate guarding. Can you? Mate、ah, guarding. Interesting. No, I actually don't get that. So mate guarding. I need guarding. more explanation. So you're guarding against it of of mating、yeah. too much. Yeah. So you you are you are literal you are, mate you are, guarding. You're literally getting people 
to make sure that the women who are in your harem are not having sex with other guys. Other guys are not sneaking in, having sex with them. And you can do this by having guys who've been castrated. So now, if they're fully castrated, where the genitals are completely removed. That's what I was going to ask next. Then, then you really don't have to, you know, you worry less about it. How you can have castration where just the testicles are removed. Mm. And there also are systems where that occurred as well, but that probably had less to do with the mate guarding, right? The big place where that occurred was the castrati in Europe. I believe it started in Italy where, you know, these boys sang in the choir and these beautiful angelic voices. And then they turned 14, and their voices started to crack. And oh so we God. said, oh, boy, well, that's really too bad, you know? But we had this one kid here and he was in a farm accident and his, his testicles got cut off. And oh my voice gosh. Was pretty good. Well, somebody noticed, somebody noticed that when the kid didn't have the testicles, his voice sounded good. He kept sounding good. So I thought, well, what if we took these young boys and snip, snip, and you know, we- wow. Do you know the story about Michael Jackson? Kevin, this is a very um, oh, I don't know this debated theory, theory that he was chemically castrated as a child so that his voice could sound like... Okay, okay, please. That's you know, very interesting. Brought on a <laughs> Joe Rogan podcast and again... Uh, 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 yeah, okay, like that's... That. I, I love Joe Rogan, but he really is a little bit too into the conspiracy theories. For of me. course. Yes, yeah. very interesting. That's a- so I have a question then. Is there a difference between female genital mutilation to this sort of castration. Yeah, female genital mutilation, it's a different thing. When I was in public health school, that was the cause celeb. So my understanding, again, I'm not the expert on this, my understanding about female genital mutilation was something that came about, I believe, you know, the, the first cases that were reported in the West were in Africa, North Africa. And the idea here was that slavers were coming in and taking slaves and that, that if the women were mutilated, then they would be less... Uh, of interest to the slavers. Oh also, God. some other body modifications have been theorized. You know, the women who have the big lip plates and things mm-hmm. like that. That was also thought to be perhaps related to that. To you know, we're not going to take those women. They, you know, they look too weird. Or, mm. Again, controversial. Not everybody believes that. So just take that with the grain of salt. But that's one theory I've heard about. And then what happened is it became a sort of a cultural thing okay. that the that it that became sort of the expected thing in the tribe that this is how women and again this happens many tri- cases there, there's variations, right? There's variations where you know they take the young girl, they do like a clitorectomy and it's done in septic, you know, conditions and it's really, you know, horrible mutilation. And then there's versions where it's like, you know, they basically take a pen and, you know, draw a little blood and you know, that's it. So there's there's variations of it depending on the culture and the place. It transferred in once some of these North African tribes converted to Islam. You find now there's spurs in some Islamic groups as well. But this is my understanding of it that this is where it was done, and it's become a, a tradition. And then what happened was these you know people, these public health people, and these NGOs saw this horrible. These young girls are being abused. You know we have to put a stop to this. We're going to lobby the government. We're going to like we're going to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. And that became the cause celeb in public health circles uh, when I was going to public health school. And then there was a woman who I think she was even in Harvard who had come from one of these tribes. And at some point she stood up and she said, paraphrasing here, how dare you whitey tell me and my people what they should be doing, imposing your values on our, our over our traditions. Mm-hmm. And she had, and I believe she did. She went back. She had not had it done as a child. Somebody prevented her from having this done, and she went back to have go through the ritual of having it done as an adult. Oh wow! And, and this idea again that you are, you are you are coming in and bringing you know 
you know. So did she do it in spite or? (laughs) I don't know the details of it. That's what I heard, you know, and that there was a sort of pushback, you know, that again, you were coming here with your, your Western, you know, uh, values and, and usurping our traditions. My understanding, and I could be wrong about this too, is that the public health community said, yeah, no, this is child abuse. We're not going to put up with this. And so what they've done is they've pressured a lot of the government's uh, in these places in North Africa and these to outlaw this practice. But of course, you know, outlawing something doesn't get rid of it overnight. Of course, no. you know, people go underground and do it. And so this still is something that that is talked about in public health circles. And there's still people out there and NGOs trying to prevent this from happening, educating people about it and et cetera. So that's what I know about that. That is different than castrating for mate guarding and castrating for whatever voluntary purposes people castrate for religious purposes, whatever it might be. Sorry, oh, sorry go ahead. where does it sorry, happen the most, the mate guarding? So mate guarding happens among primates that have um, dominant hierarchies that are headed by an alpha male. Okay. And you can see it in primates and you can see it in human beings. So if you've ever had that boyfriend, you wanted to go out with your friends and have a drink. He's like, where are you going? How late are you going to be? When are you going to come back? You weren't back at 830. You said you'd be back at three. Where were you? You know, oh, you, Joe, that friend of yours, was he hanging around? You know, that guy, that's mate guarding, right? That's yeah, a lot of guarding. people do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of people do. Yeah, we're, we're, guess what? We're all primates. Yeah, so a lot of exactly. And then also women mate guard, right? It also goes the other way around. I love women how that's called mate, mate guarding guard. as like the yeah, official terminology. Yeah. Because in Australia, it's just like... It's possession. And then it's like... Yeah. yeah, not mate like your your, your bros mate, you know. Yeah, that's so. what I said. Because when but you said I'm, it, I was like... You're guarding my missus. <laughs> it happens everywhere. In the past, it's thought that there were more polygamous societies. Again, I don't know. This is controversy. I don't know that it's true, but this is the, the speculation. It's just speculation. You know, there's some genetic evidence to back it up. So what happened is they would castrate uh, these boys. They would they would raise them to become the guardians of the harem. Yep, eunuchs. Right? That's why they you'll find eunuchs. most harems have eunuchs. So that's they why have eunuchs, and right? Right? it's it's predominant predominantly like. We know about it because when the Mughals came to India, uh, yes. the Mughal Empire, they were sort of the first people to, you know, have a harem. Yeah. And harems would always have women who were either the king's wives or they were prostitutes and eunuchs. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting why eunuchs uh, were there. They're really quite prostitutes. They're concubines. They're sort oh, yeah, of concubines. Wives and what the hell wives is that? And girlfriends, you know? Concubines. They're like, they're, like, uh, they're like, you know, friends with benefits kind of, you know, I mean. That's oh. the word, but, concubines. I've never heard that word. Concubines. Yeah, concubine. Nothing to do with porcupine. Just, just letting you know. <laughs> concubine, the official word. And so, yeah, you know, that's that's my my ancestry too, right? You know, the the sultans of Turkey had mm-hmm. these these people, and they would go out and you know they would raid in you know Europe, and they would take these young boys, and they would bring them back and castrate them and raise them up to be eunuchs, and they would guard do various guarding things. Same in Africa, they would go and now what happens over time is these eunuchs in some places, I think this happened in the Middle East, definitely happened in China, that the eunuchs become a sort of a, a ruling class. Because one thing the eunuchs is, is they are very close to the emperor. Here are people that the emperor, you know, you're going to hang out with your guys, but these are guys you don't have to worry about knocking up your girlfriend, mm-hmm. right? So you hang out with them. It's like the gay friend. <laughs> like your gay friend. They're also thought to not have an agenda mm. to usurp your power because they're eunuchs, so they can't have a family and pass on, yeah. you know, and massive dynasty so they they become trusted and so what happens especially in china is the eunuchs um amass a great deal of power and they are appointed as governors of provinces and they become a whole sort of administrative 
bureaucratic class. It's very high up in the hierarchy. I believe this also it's in happens India. in the Middle East and in India as well. Yeah, in Bombay, if you go. So eunuchs, like you yeah. said, are very respected. And if, say, if they do ask for money, because a lot of them do ask for money, and if you don't give them money, it's considered a curse. Well, if you're in India, if you're thinking about the hijira, that's a different thing. Oh, so the what's hijira, the difference? I don't know if the hijira were traditionally government eunuchs. They do ask for money. That's they do. And I was in India and they came up and they asked for money. And if you don't give money, they kind of harangue you a little bit. You know, that was my experience in India. Uh, but I don't know that they were, and I may be wrong about this. I didn't know if, if they were a class that were part of the ruling bureaucracy, they, like the eunuchs were in China. And the, the hijira, my, my understanding is a lot of hijira make the living as sex workers. Well, it, it depends. So wrong about I've got that, it in front of me. So in the Indian subcontinent and hijra are eunuchs or intersex people and transgender people. And right. the community in India prefer to call themselves whatever, refer to mythological beings that excel at song and dance. So that's what they were really used for is song and dance. And that's why they ask you for money because they will perform when a baby is born at your house. So right. they will come to your house and you give them money right. for, so they never that's just right. ask for money. Hmm. So it's really interesting. And they became their own class of people that you didn't want to offend. They've got their union now, which is right, amazing. Right, right. right so you, yes, do not, become, you do not fuck with them. Yeah, they're very organized, Yeah, but they were not part of the ruling bureaucracy. No, like no. That. So in that sense, different than in China. And I believe in the Middle East that the eunuchs became part of, you know, very, very powerful people in the government, you know. And it's really interesting. Like, I like to watch a lot of um, Kung Fu movies, you know, mm. like, that's just kind of my thing you're from china and you'll find every once in a while you'll see in these kung fu movies they'll have like one of the evil governor guys and he'll come out and he'll be sort of affected and you go wait a minute that guy's a eunuch right that's the mm. evil governor is a eunuch mm -hmm. you know and they're powerful you know these are powerful individuals well it's in game and of thrones so, he's a massive character in game of thrones well, yeah, i know in both game of, of thrones and, he's, yeah he's like the guy behind the scenes yeah exactly. yeah that's that's, that's him that's exactly and what a great i'm sure i'm sure george r, r. martin got inspiration yeah for that from you know from history but so they evolved from being mate guarding to being more like trusted government officials right <laughs> so that's my understanding about at least this systematic castration now there are people who get castrated for religious reasons there is you know you take a line in the bible or whatever where it says you know you, i'm paraphrasing here don't get distracted by your genitals and and so there have been religious uh, groups that have uh, done voluntary castration one of the biggest ones was in russia it's called the Skopsy and they would castrate themselves. Um, a lot of times after they, you know, they'd be middle-aged, they'd already had their families. or whatever. That's also true for eunuchs in China too, that sometimes, you know, they'd be a family man, they'd already had their kids, you know, and they would go off and get the job and, the, you know, working for the government, they would have to undergo uh, castration. And it was one of the first recorded surgical operations. The way they did it was they recorded it, how they did it, and and it was actually very successful. And there was a whole class of surgeons that would that would that live near the palace that would accommodate people in need of this operation. And what's the difference between castration and uh, like male vasectomy? Well, vasectomy is where you just cut the tubes, and so the sperm does not uh, mm -hmm. leave the body. Castration can be just removal of the testicles, which you have with the castrati, you know, the singers. They just had the testicles removed and actually the castrati, when they grew up and they became these great, you know, opera stars, singing stars, they were kind of the rock stars of the day. A lot of women would like approach them, you know, to have affairs with them because uh, first of all, they were like the rock stars and also they could have sex with them, but not get pregnant. They were mm. they're capable of having sex, capable of attaining an erection, but and they were shooting blanks. And so okay. they were they were sought after. So a lot of them have had, had lots of women, girlfriends and 
you know, partying and, you know, they had this kind of rock star lifestyle from back in the day. And so they had just the testicles removed. The eunuchs in China had the testicle and the penis removed. Oh, the thing, wow. Which they preserved in a jar because in the, they needed to have that. So in the afterlife, they would, the, the belief was when they died and they would go to the afterlife, they would be reunited with their genitals if they kept it and they had it with wow. them. And so that was very important that they preserve them. You know, and they well, would it's a bit them. late, isn't it? Well, <laughs> not for the afterlife. The, the belief was they would be reunited with their with their body parts. Do you believe in an afterlife, Kevin? <laughs> uh, you know, I, if you really put put the gun to my head, I would say it's shooting blanks. <laughs> no, hopefully it's shooting blanks. I would say no, but I don't. I mean, I'd be very agnostic about. it. I don't know. I identify religiously as a Buddhist, and the Buddhists believe in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're the only uh, after-death belief that has any scientific evidence is for reincarnation. Oh, really? What's right? the scientific the evidence? Yeah. So there's a guy named Ian Stevenson, who was a professor at the University of Virginia, actually in the same department as my dad, who uh, went to places, went to India, and did research where he interviewed people who had been reincarnated or thought to be reincarnated. So he found these people who uh, could remember their past lives. And he'd go to, this, go to a village and there'd be some kid. And the kid would say, well, you know, I grew up in this village. You know, it was 50 miles away. It was in this place. I grew up in the house was brown. I had a red bicycle. My mom's name was, you know, Jane. And my dad was Joe. I'm sure in India, their names were something else. You know, Jan and Joe. <laughs> my dad's name was Rajesh and my mom's name was, you know, Sarasvati, you know, whatever it might be. And, you know, and, and, and my mom uh, had a sister whose name was Nancy and I had a brother named Jimmy and my dad made a living as baker and on and on these details, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. specific details. And so what Stevenson did is, he, okay, he went to the village, found a house that was brown that had Jane and Joe living there. And he said, oh, you know, how was your, well, we had our kid died three years ago. He was in a car accident or you know he was in the bicycle when he got hit in the street and then they brought the kid to the house and the kid would go to the parents and say mom it's me i know this and you know where's my bike where's my stuff and what are you doing here and you know and the kid remembered the past life right Mm -hmm. so in, in in hinduism there is this idea that when you go reincarnate, there is a... It's based on your karma. It's based on your karma, right? Everything is based on karma, but there is a point when you're reborn where the hard drive is erased, right? And the idea is, one of the ideas is that if your death is very sudden or very traumatic... Exactly what I was going to ask, because it seems that... The hard drive doesn't get erased. Yes, that's when it tends to come back. The process doesn't doesn't happen probably so stevenson went to india and he went to places and this is the criticism he went to places where they believe in reincarnation but he found 150 cases a couple hundred cases of, of this kind of a thing of which he had 20 that were really really like the thing i'm describing mm-hmm. I mean, really over. the kid remembered everything wow. you know and they remembered exactly what happened oh i remember last thing i remember i was riding my bike and suddenly a truck came and you know and they they remembered details of stuff and you know he documented he wrote a book and he documented 20 cases suggested reincarnation but that is the only documented evidence of you know scientifically you know gathered evidence of the afterlife now we don't know what the mechanism is we don't know if, if it's just memories that are being passed somehow we don't know if there's actually a soul that an atman that reincarnates we don't know any of that all we know is that there's this phenomenon which seems to be unexplained by you know, uh, Western science. And what was the criticism 
What was the criticism that criticism he had got? Criticism was that he did these studies only in places where they believed in reincarnation, which since his stuff came out, that now the Westerners know about these things, that you're starting to see cases of the stuff crop up in the West. And it may have been that, you know, the Westerners sort of ignored this because they didn't really believe, it wasn't part of the belief system, so they just ignored it. What happens with these kids who have these experiences that it tends to fade over time. By the time they're five or six years old, it fades out. They start forgetting their previous life and they just hmm. go on with this life, right? And it may be that in the West, that just got glossed over and nobody remembered. Now there's started to have been some kind of high profile cases where there's been kids in the West who remember <laughs> their past life. There's a very famous one where the, the kid was reborn and he, um, he was drawing pictures of airplanes and wars and battles. And the parents would ask him about the airplanes and he could tell them in minute detail about the airplanes and how to fly it and what all the parts were and what you had to inspect before you got in all the stuff that a three or four year old kid there was no way that they would know how to do this and then it turned out he kept having these dreams these nightmares where he was in this plane it was burning up and more and more stuff came out and the parents who were very christian very religious they actually were open-minded enough to start researching this and they figured out this kid is reincarnation of this guy he got killed in the war uh, in a fighter plane fighting the Japanese and he had memories and then he remembered his name he remembered his, his, the people he was his regiment and um, and so that case is one of the ones in the West that's been documented there's been a couple other ones as well and it's yeah. again so it's again, interesting that it happens in those years of zero to three there's something very unique yeah. about that time right? yeah yeah well what happened the idea is what happens is at a certain point you know the, the kid's life the development you know what's going on with them now you know they're you know, they've got new parents, they've got new stuff impinging in the old stuff. Like, you know, like childhood, your childhood memories fade, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't remember stuff I did when I was two years old. You know, and most people don't have really, you know, vivid memories of their childhood. Imagine it's not just your childhood, but your previous life, it fades away. Uh, but there's now been some documented cases of it. Again, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. It has not been explained yet. And there's a guy, Stevenson has died. Uh, the guy who started the research died, but the guy who's... A guy who's taken over for him. And so the research, as far as I know, is continuing. There's still a guy doing this research. Well, the issue is that you've given us too much. Right, <laughs> you've given us so much stuff. And the funny thing is we actually haven't even gone to the other questions that we had regarding... But we have covered one thing. I actually <laughs> wanted to talk about animal hoarding, animal crush, yeah. Yeah, and animal also hoarding. cannibalism. We'll have to do another yeah. session because... Well, we can do another session or, yeah, whatever Like a part two. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm up for it. Part two, part three, you know. But I can talk about animal hoarding and cannibalism. Yeah, you know, I have I have my lecture on cannibalism is out there in the wild as well. And I haven't had anybody complain about that yet. So I'm sure that's... <laughs> I'm sure something will come up. <laughs> I still have questions about Nazis. We can talk about that too. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Kevin. We are going to organize for us to get together again. You know, we'll talk about Nazis, cannibalism, Animal and hoarding and animal crush. And I play the guitar, and Huda sings really well. Maybe uh, we can, Maybe have, like, we can a have a band. Zoom like jam session. Guys, I wish <laughs> you guys were close by. You know, we tried playing over uh, over the internet. Oh, it's know, shit. Um, it's horrible. It's it, 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 too much lag. You know, and I'm talking about people who are 40 miles away, and we had too much lag. But boy, it would be great. You know, when we get the 5G, it's going to be good, right? 5G will let us do like the. Don't you actually 5G. have 5G already? No, not. We don't oh. have the actual 5G. 
that's a whole other really discussion. Five G. Yeah, like planted in my brain, and you know whatever with the vaccine. You know, it's in the vaccine. They're planning. <laughs> is that what it I is? Is wait. that the conspiracy yeah. theory? Look, if they're gonna that's make me, them, yes. If they're gonna make me an internet router, <laughs> yeah. Put it in my head. Maybe I'll be of use to someone. <laughs> like you'll start yeah. talking in a code of ones and It'll zeros. Be great for us musicians, you know, musicians will love it. We can play get jam sessions across the world and it'll be wonderful <laughs> in, in real time. It'll be great. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. We'll speak to you really okay. soon. All right, All right Kevin. Take care, you Bye. Guys. Good talking to you. Yeah, see ya. See ya.